I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. There's been an issue as of late with certain Patreon supporters not showing up in the producer's credits because they weren't showing up on the Patreon list for the $10 and above tier. I even had some people that were on the $5 tier that were paying $10 a month. So there was a lot of confusion. I've actually managed to figure out what the problem was. It's all been fixed and we're not leaving out anyone with producer's credits. So with that in mind, producer's credit shout outs to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, and Thomas. I'm sorry if I missed your name in past Parallax Views episodes. Like I said, there was an issue with Patreon and the and the tier listing, and I was completely blindsided by it. So I'm really sorry. It won't happen again. Thank you so much. And I hope all of you will continue supporting me and that I will be able to give you a producer's credit on all future episodes of Parallax Views. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Dr. Asal Rod, Research Director for the National Iranian American Council, returns to discuss the wave of protests that have been sweeping across Iran in the past few months. Additionally, Dr. Rod and I will discuss her new book, The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran, which investigates the formation of national identity in Iran from the Pahlavi dynasty to the Islamic Republic and how the Iranian people have resisted imposed forms of identity over the years. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Dr. Asal Rod 
author of The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. Welcome back to Parallax Views. One of my favorite guests, Dr. Asal Rod of the National Iranian American Council and author of the really fascinating new book. I'm still working through it, but it is a barn burner. The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. I suggest everyone get a hold of that. It's very timely. How are you doing, Dr. Rod? I'm good. Thank you for having me. So a lot has happened since the last time we spoke. Uh, you know, we have these protests in Iran now, the death to the dictator protests. We have the UN trying to do a resolution uh, to investigate uh, human rights abuses in Iran. And I think it just came out that um, the Islamic Republic is um, sort of clapping back about that. And of course, we have your new book out that I mentioned. So there's a lot going on. How would you sort of give a give a brief rundown of your assessment of uh, the protests in Iran and maybe how we should be understanding them as leftists? Well, so the, these protests were sparked by the killing of Gina Masa Amini, a Kurdish, a young Kurdish Iranian woman. She was 22 years old. Um, by she was Iran- arrested for wearing her hijab incorrectly, according to the morality police or something. Along those exactly. lines, right? Exactly. So she was so she was arrested uh, and beaten by Iran's so-called morality police, um, who are typically like their most uh, obvious everyday task is to police uh, the attire that people wear, especially women. There's a dress code that is uh, imposed on men and women in the society, but it's much more severe for Iranian women, and it is enforced much more strictly. And so under this administration, the Raisi administration, and and Prior to the killing of Masa Amini, um, this is like an ultra conservative hardline admin who has tried to all take already severe restrictions and limitations and make them even more strict. And so there was an attempt to enforce the uh, hijab laws more strictly because the way that you know, and in sort of everyday act of defiance and everyday act of civil disobedience. Um, what a lot of Iran, millions of Iranian women do is that they wear the hijab loosely because, of course, it's one of the only countries in the world that actually forces you to wear uh, a head covering. And so even though the law requires none of your hair to show, um, for very for many, very many years, decades, women in Iran have been wearing the, the hijab loosely um, because, in fact, they do not want to wear it. And so when Masa Amini was arrested for you know, her alleged inappropriate hijab, one of, I mean, just the sheer brutality of being beaten for something like that, the fact that she, this young woman was killed, um, all of that contributes to the outrage that we saw pouring into the streets. But another part of it, another element was the fact that, like I said, millions of women wear their hijab loosely. So, you know, Gina Masa Amini in very many ways could have been any young woman in the country. And I think that is part of the reason why it also sparked the kind of outrage that it did. But what you also saw was so initially in the early stages of the of the protests, you had this women led, women centered um, protest movement, and it continues to be centered around uh, women's rights. The the central slogan, uh, "Women, Life, Freedom," continues to be used. 
But at the same time, it evolved. It evolved into a protest against the entirety of the system, a protest against the authoritarianism of that system. And that's why you hear uh, chants like Death the Dictator and even Death to Khamenei himself naming the Supreme Leader um, as a sort of everyday slogan within these protests as well. Something to keep in mind is this is not the first time Iranians have used the death of the dictator as part of their protest chants. In fact, in 2009, during the Green Movement, um, that was one of the first things that happened in the Green Movement was that it broke that sort of taboo of actually saying death of the dictator because it's extremely dangerous in a country like Iran, an authoritarian state. Um, as you can see, the number of protesters that have been arrested, thousands of protesters have already been arrested chanting death to the dictator and death to Khamenei is a very sort of dangerous political terrain to enter. But these protests have now taken on uh, this idea of going to the to the very core of the system, even calling for the toppling of that system, uh, calling for an end to the Islamic Republic. And so I think one of the things, and you specifically asked left, uh, how do we approach it from the left? One of the early criticisms that I had um, of the sort of American left was that, understandably, the American left has an anti-imperialist view. And so, you know, it's anti-war, anti-imperialist and, and U.S. intervention. But at the same time, there was some language that undermined the very legitimate grievances that Iranians have and have had for a very long time. And the fact that these were organic and continue to be organic protests. Um, and you can see that in the fact that there is a there's a pattern of protests within the country, which have become more and more in, in recent years, especially as the economic situation has gotten worse and worse. Now, of course, you can make an argument for part of the reason for that economic downturn are U.S. sanctions. That's certainly a part of it. But that's not that's only a part of the story. Right. U.S. sanctions are not culpable for the morality police. U.S. sanctions are not culpable for an authoritarian system. U.S. sanctions are not culpable for a mandatory hijab laws. So those when we only look at the view of sanctions then we're dismissing all of these other legitimate grievances that Iranians have. And so what I would implore people on the left to do is to not parrot the sort of talking points of the Islamic Republic and recognize that we can be critical both of U.S. imperialist and policies, policies, but at the same time be critical of the authoritarianism and the violence that be, is being carried out by the Islamic Republic as we speak. It's refreshing to hear that because I feel like there's sort of an attempt to put uh, all of this into like an either or binary. You know, you either are sort of on the the, the John Bolton um, sort of neoconservative side of things, uh, wanting, you know, uh, U.S. regime change, um, or you're, you know, or you're yelling that it's a Keller revolution. And I don't think this is a Keller revolution. So it, it seems like we have to walk a very careful line in, you know, addressing the protests. And I think people are, are going to one extreme or the other and not sort of walking that line right now. Absolutely. And then I think you're, you're, you know, you said it perfectly. There's, it's a, it's, you have to walk a careful line because, and this is, in my opinion, part of the sort of polarization of the political spectrum that we've seen in general, right? Like you, you know, imagine the reactions that we had in the United States to the COVID pandemic something that you would think it should not be a pandemic, should not be a politicized event, and yet it was. And people 
often in that situation fell into very opposing camps. Um, and there is that tendency to, to take one side or the other. But the reality of it is that there are, this is a complex situation. You're dealing with a country of over 80 million people. There is no individual or no group that represents that, that, that entire population. Um, there is a diverse a spectrum of political and ideological outlooks. It's religiously and ethnically diverse. There's so many things to understand the the complex layers where, you know, we can, we should be able to all agree that killing protesters, that killing kids is wrong. This should not be a difficult thing for us to do. And yet you see um, attempts to sort of like whitewash that and say that, you know, this is this is foreign intervention. This is happening from the outside. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't parties that would want to capitalize on uh, an ongoing conflict in a country like Iran. But at the same time, that's not what's happening in the country. What's happening is these are, you know, we've seen scenes of kids as young as 13, 14 participating in some kind of protest chant, whether it's girls at, uh, you know, in, in, high school or uh, junior high, uh, removing their uh, compulsory hijab and, and yelling at people. So it's not, this is not, this is the consequence of many grievances. And if you look at large protest movements in Iran over the last um, like decade and a half, in 2009, what sparked the Green Movement and sparked that protest movement was a political grievance. And that was based on um, contesting the election results of the 2009 election. In 2019, in November of 2019, uh, you had large-scale protests that were brutally cracked down. That was sparked by economic grievances when uh, oil price, when gas prices uh, spiked overnight. And in 2022, in September, what sparked these was a social grievance, right? This is a matter of social freedom, the fact that uh, women don't have the autonomy to choose their dress. So that within itself should show you the level of grievances that people have and how they move across the spectrum. And undergirding all of it is a desperate economic situation. So I was wondering if you could comment on you know, I, I think a lot of people have framed this as, you know, a feminist protest, but I, I, I feel like you're right that it's evolved into more than that. Maybe you could elaborate on that. Like, and also if you could, uh, who are the type of people th that are engaging in protests right now? I mean, like what's the, the sort of demographic makeup of it? Well, what's interesting about these protests is so in 2009, if the protests were more um, urban centered and middle class in 2019, if they were more, uh, sporadic around the country and centered on the working class and uh, you know lower middle class people with uh, more more vulnerable to shifts in the economic situation. What you're seeing now is sort of a uh, it cuts across. It cuts across class. It cuts across gender. It cuts across ethnicity. Um, so you have a lot more people in different in different sort of um, sectors of Iranian society that are joining. You have, you know, so there's workers, for instance, who have called, you've called for general strikes, workers who have gone on strike um, in support of the protest. But something to keep in mind is that workers have been using strikes and, and the labor movement has been, you know, flourishing in Iran in recent years. And the state has been cracking down on that very movement, the labor movement. Um, labor protesters, labor leaders have been arrested prior to these protests, uh, precisely because 
you know, the the state has moved more and more towards uh, a more oppressive state and arresting and detaining anyone who can show leadership. I mean, there's a question right now to these protests. It, they're they're leaderless, right? Thus far, there's no um, leader within Iran that stepped up to to take that mantle. And yet the argument can be made that it's because the leaders are all in Evin prison, right? They are, and they have been systematically in prison, whether they're human rights activists, whether they're women's rights activists, whether they are, um, you know, labor activists, there has been a pattern of repressing those activists prior to these protests. Um, and that's in part why you don't see uh, that leadership emerging. But it's also, in certain ways, the fact that it's leaderless is also beneficial because it allows for, for this cross-section of society to, to air any like broad sense of grievance. And that's also why you see the, the fact that they've been sustained for over two months. Um, there are people who say things like, oh, you know, the protests are pretty much dying down, but that's not true. They, you see that on specific days, uh, days especially that mark the 40th day of mourning, which is the end, the traditional end of the mourning period for someone who's died, of the, especially the young people, especially young women who have been killed in these protests. What you see is an increase in young women who have been killed in protests. And that tells us that there are more young women involved in protests. So there's two factors Women have always been part of Iranian protests. They've always been part of, you know, Iranian political movements, but they've never been at the center quite in this fashion. And the other is a new generation. That's one of the things that's uh, exceptional and new about these protests. This Generation Z, where in previous iterations of protests, they were probably too young to participate, but they've really come on the scene um, as a vocal part of this protest movement. And that's why you see so many protests on university campuses. So it is very much youth-led. Do you think there's any parallels that we can draw between the protests happening in Iran right now and say, uh, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter protests here in the U.S. Uh, the past few years? I mean, it parallels every country uh, has its own unique sort of history and cultural and political trajectory. Um, and even within those countries, you have subgroups that also have like very unique characteristics. And so I think you can make broad parallels in the sense that when you look at uh, the, the BLM movement in the summer of 2020, that also was sparked, obviously, by the killing of George Floyd. Um, but it went deeper than simply police brutality. It may have started that way. It may have centered um, Black Lives Matter, uh, the, the you know institutionalized racism, especially anti-Blackness that exists in the United States and which has historically existed in the United States, um, as well as police brutality at the center. But that also evolved into greater grievances. And when those when you have a situation where you have a populace that has legitimate grievances and you have a large scale protest movement that is sustained for several months, it sort of invites other groups to bring in their, their grievances as well. And when you go from police brutality to institutional racism, you realize that it's, it's the institution itself that's being protested against, the inequity within that system. And so to a certain extent, you can make these very broad parallels. But of course, the Iranian situation is quite different, namely in the fact that whereas in the United States, you still have, and we're deeply flawed democracy. So let me just caveat that at the very beginning, a deeply flawed democracy, but a democracy in which people still 
exercise their power to to change the government to and and have a government that operates by uh you know carrying out the wishes of the people. Why do I say it's deeply flawed? Because it doesn't do that for the most part, right? We have many examples of the majority of Americans holding a particular political point of view and those views not being carried out in the policy realm. But in the case of Iran, what has also happened in, in this recent iteration of protests is Iran, since the revolution, people have typically participated in Iranian elections, despite the fact that obviously it's it, there's it's really just a facade of democracy overlaying Iran's democratic apparatus is an authoritarian state with the supreme leader, which is an unelected body at the very top. But it also has um, elected officials. It has elected branches of government and Iranians have participated in the last several decades in those elections because who was president, who the administration was, had an impact on um, their day-to-day -day lives, and there was a belief that the system could be reformed, right? So that's why there was a reform movement in the country. But what's happened now, and you see this in the 2021 election in Iran, where the, you have historic low vo voter turnout, something like 42 or 43% voter turnout, in a country which in the previous election had had a 70% voter turnout. I mean, that is a that is a massive shift in participation in elections. And so there is now this idea, and especially coming from this younger generation that had not participated in um, in Iranian civil society because they were too young to do so, that doesn't see reform as a possibility because they see it as an because the state refuses to reform. Um, and you even see this recently comments um, that the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei has made. Uh, when you have this attempted internal debate in the country, you have the former reformist president uh, Khatami coming out and saying, you know, we have to have to listen to the people. We have to listen, heed their calls. And there's an obstinate refusal on the part of uh, the supreme leader on Khamenei and those closest to him, the most hardline, unelected authoritarian elements of the state to concede anything, to concede any space. And so if the state refuses to reform, then the people are left with no other choice but to call for the toppling of the system, which is precisely what you're seeing now. Real quick, in, parallel in the US situation. Real, real quick in regards to uh, Iranian elections. You know, what I always hear people say is, well, isn't it, it's an authoritarian state, their elections are, are more, I guess people argue, that the elections are more like window dressing or that they don't matter. What do you think people misunderstand here in the U.S. about Iranian elections? Because I think it's more complicated than most people realize. Well, so first of all, it's a question of agency, right? When we when someone says Iranian elections don't matter, they're basically saying Iranians don't have agency because when they participate or choose not to participate as an act of boycott, all of that is, is their agency, right? So for instance, and, and this is why I was saying earlier, um, the crit my criticism of some leftists when they talk about these protests is when you try to say that these are not legitimate protests, when you try to say that this is, you know, uh, foreign agitators, then you are undermining the agency of those people who are participating in these protests. The same argument exists for those who uh, undermine Iranians who do choose to participate in elections. And they, like I said, they historically have done so. In the 2017 election, 70% of Iranians participated. If it had no, if at least at that historical point, 
it had no bearing on their everyday life, then why are they participating in them? And so I think it's important not to undermine the agency of people in any action that they take. And it doesn't matter if the action is something that you agree or disagree with. It's simply that they are agents of change. They are they have the autonomy to decide things, whether that be a protest, whether that be voting in an election, whether that be boycotting an election. In every iteration, they are making a choice. At the same time, it's of course fair to say that the, that, and that's why I said, I mean, you can't, the, you can't compare it to the United States because the United States is not an authoritarian state. In Iran, you have an elected government, but you also have an unelected government. It's almost like a dual system. And of course, the unelected body wields more power over the elected body. At the same time, there is a difference with who the president is. Um, there is a difference in how their, their outlooks. If you look at the uh, Rouhani administration and you sort of that administration was sandwiched between Ahmadinejad and now the Raisi administration. It was the Rouhani administration that was much more um, amenable to di diplomacy and negotiations with the West, especially the United States. You see that much less in, in the other two administrations. Um, even how the, the sort of the enforcement of things like hijab, these everyday uh, policies that affect their lives, um, those things also change with who is in power. Now, that being said, the fundamental issues don't change, right? It's not like the Rouhani administration um, did away with the mandatory hijab. They certainly didn't do that. It's not like the Rouhani administration did not use deadly force against protesters in November of 2019. They did. So, so I also don't want to, I think that it's important to have a balanced picture of what we're talking about in the same way that we were saying earlier, you have to walk this careful line. We just have to talk about things in a more honest way, I think. And, and I think when you're talking about your own country, if you if you hear conversations about the US, we understand this nuance a lot more, right? The, the country is not simply divided between you know, Republicans and Democrats. In, in fact, the largest vote, voting bloc in the United States is independence, right? So you can't you can't create these binary, like black and white pictures of the country. And we tend not to do so when we're talking about our own own country, our own populace, our own sort of like in-groups. But when we talk about other countries, there's this tendency to make it very binary. And I think that is another binary approach, like to say that elections are meaningless uh, really undermines the agency of the people, the millions of people who have participated in them for very many years. Could you also talk, I know that, that you helped publish NIAC's uh, Human Rights Tracker on Iran, so could you talk about some of the other incidents of just human rights issues that arise in, in the Islamic Republic, in addition to these latest events that have occurred? Absolutely. And it's it's unfortunate because basically it, it goes across the spectrum of what could be a human rights violation. I mean, so when you talk about, for instance, um, women's rights, minority rights, Baha'is and other religious minorities do not have the same rights. Uh, Baha'is basically not even recognized. And so um, for them to get a higher education is a challenge. For them to own property is a challenge. And so that that is a clear human rights issue. Uh, women, it's not just the compulsory hijab that makes women second-class citizens in the country. There are uh, many laws, uh, whether they're divorce laws, uh, like eyewitness accounts, inheritance laws, there's whether or not they're allowed to leave the country with a passport without the permission of a, a father or a husband. There's a lot of laws that, that make women second-class citizens within the country. There is the lack of due process for uh, 
the trials of uh, political dissidents, uh, foreign nationals that have been held you know, with bogus charges that have then been used in prisoner swaps with other countries. Uh, the fact that labor activists are arrested and given harsh sentences simply for trying to organize for the working class, human rights activists that are imprisoned, uh, prisoners of conscience. I mean, it's it's unfortunately so much that it, it's hard to try and list it out. Um, Iran is, I think, one of the uses the death penalty. I don't know if it's number two or three. It's it's one of the higher highest rates of the use of the death penalty in the world. And, and that's one of the fears that exists right now, is that you have estimates of between 15 to 18,000 people who have been arrested, I mean, mass arrests in a protest. Um, and there is the fear that many may face executions. So there's a whole gambit of human rights violations that the, the state engages in, in, in sort of like daily existence from the laws that are discriminatory to a judicial system um, that is that lacks, you know, basic things like due process to an entire system that lacks uh, democratic accountability because it is authoritarian at the top. So I think this is a good segue into your book, uh, The State of Resistance. Uh, it's a very interesting book because you're essentially dealing with Iranian national identity and how this has shaped Iran, both its people, as well as uh, the state in many ways, right? Uh, so I, I was wondering, how did we get from, you know, the uh, Pahlavi dynasty to the Islamic Republic? And what's the role of national identity in the formation of Iran's people and state, and how those two different entities see themselves today? One of the arguments of the book is it's really it's uh, Iran is used as a case study to look at the idea of uh, nation states and you know nationalism and national identities, because while for you know most people we we sort of take for granted this way of organizing human society as nation states, in the course of human history, nation states are actually quite new still. M most nation states were formed in the last hundred years, and while there's a lot of sort of attempts to think about things in terms of internationalism, right? How we transcend borders, international institutions. The world is very, very much still organized by the notion of these nation states. And so the case of Iran was an interesting case to look at because while it is the territory um, belongs to one of the oldest empires in you know, human civilization, it is, it's, current iteration of becoming a modern nation state, part of the story was like part of becoming a modern nation state is having a modern nationalism, right? That's why we create things like um, passports, uh, national identities, a, a national language, secondary education, uh, a, a conscripted military so that you always have a standing military. Like these are the very basic pillars of a nation state. And like I said, we take it for granted, but a lot of a lot of the nation states that current that exist today came into existence over the last hundred years. Now, Iran was a country that was never formally colonized during you know, the period of European colonialism and imperialism. But that does not mean that it was uh, sort of safe from colonial games. 
so you have, for instance, in the 19th century, the great game between the British and the Russians who are vying for power over uh, Iranian resources and land. Um, this is during the Qajar dynasty at that point in Iran's history. And so the Qajar dynasty is seen uh, historically for Iranians as this very dark period because it is associated, and this is a narrative that the Pahlavi dynasty also sort of promotes, is that it is this dark period because there's it's marked by land loss and concessions to these imperial powers. And so what naturally became a part of nationalist and independence movements in the 20th century was independence from foreign powers. Um, and a lot of that independence came through revolutions. So you have a lot of this kind of revolutionary and independence rhetoric, uh, not only within the greater Middle East, where, you know, at the end of World War I and the fall of the Ottoman Empire, you have all these new nation states forming, but also in Iran, where they're, they, like I said, they weren't formally colonized, but they were still part of this, you know, their resources were still being used by foreign powers. One case in point, which I think for especially an American audience um, will possibly be remembered, is oil. Right. So Iran was theoretically an independent country in the 20th century, but it didn't have control over its own oil that was controlled mostly by Britain. And so in the 1940s and early 50s, uh, when you have a period of uh, more political openness in Iran, because in 1941, Reza Shah, the first Pahlavi king, is exiled by the Allied powers. Iran is occupied by the Allied powers during World War II. When he is exiled and he leaves, uh, giving the throne to his young son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi at the time, he was a weak monarch and really Iran was occupied by uh, the Allied powers. They didn't care much for domestic Iranian politics. They just wanted to use Iran as a base during World War II um, and also to use its resources. So this was actually a time of political openness in Iran between 1941 and 1953. And from that, you have a figure like Mohammad Mossadegh who emerges and his main sort of what his legacy is, what he is known for, is the nationalization of oil. Now, you can only nationalize oil if it doesn't already belong to you. And that's what I mean when I say that there are elements of colonial influence and impact on the country. And of course, he's successful at nationalizing oil. And then in 1953, uh, the British, along with the help of the Americans, overthrow uh, his prime ministership uh, and reinstall the, the Shah Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, who becomes the last king of Iran, who's deposed by a revolution in 1979. So what I wanted to do is really look at national narratives, storytelling, because even to this day, you see the Islamic Republic try constantly to control the narrative. The narrative is so important. And when I say that, that's why they say, oh, this is these aren't, you know, these aren't protests. These are, quote, riots. Uh, these aren't legitimate grievances. These are, quote, agitators. This is not, these are not Iranians who are participating. These are, quote, foreign-backed elements, right? That's all about narrative control. And that is what every state does. And that uh, included the, the monarchy, uh, the Pahlavi monarchy, as well as the, the Islamic Republic once it took power in 1979. But what's interesting is when you look at people's narratives, and so one of the things that um, I argued in the book is that Iranians in the 19, you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s resisted the narrative of the Pahlavi monarchs. It didn't resonate with them. And so they tried to create their own counter narrative of their own national identities that infused other elements 
of their identities that went beyond Persian dominion, which was one of the, the cornerstones of uh, Pahlavi national identity. I, right? I was going to say real quick, if you could. So for people that don't know, oh. what what is the sort of Pahlavi monarchies, I, I, I would say narrow definition of national identity? How do they try to sort of narrow the, the definition of what that identity is? Oh, I think, you know, in, in creating a modern nation state, they wanted to have a cohesive identity that tied that nation together. And the language, even though Iran has, you know, several uh, linguistic uh, groups, people, different ethnicities that speak different languages, Persian was the language that was ultimately um, became the national language, right? Secondary school was all in Persian. Everybody had to learn Persian. But what's interesting is even my, for instance, my maternal grandparents um, are Turkish Iranian. They're ethnically Turkish. Uh, so they're from like the Northern Azerbaijan uh, area of Iran. And they spoke Persian with an accent. And this is not, you know, we're not talking about ancient history. This is my own, uh, this is two generations before me. So my grandparents, my parents spoke Persian as their first language, but even my grandparents spoke Persian with an accent. And so this is part of that building that national uh, narrative and that national identity. Um, and so there was a lot of focus on especially pre-Islamic ancient Iran, Iranian empire that went back to the Achaemenid dynasty and Cyrus the Great, right? Echoing that this is sort of this, that the Pahlavi dynasty represented an unbroken 2,500 year monarchy in Iran, which of course is ahistorical. Um, over the course of 2,500 years, there have been uh, many different empires and, and periods of, you know, where the, the Iranian landmass has expanded and con constricted and not necessarily with quote Persians, right? Like ethnic Persians who, who were ruling the land. So, but that was the attempt by the state, right? To focus on this, this ancient greatness, this Persian civilization um, and the Persian empire. And, so it's not and, as focused the on the Islamic itself. element that we get later. Yeah. You know, the, so to be fair, the Shah did identify as a Shiite Muslim, and he talked about his uh, religiosity as well. But in terms of the identity of the state, you know, even when asked uh, point blank, you know, what is the unifying factor in in this nation? Um, the Shah would always say it was the monarchy. It was the king himself, like the father of the nation. So he very much saw himself as what united the entire country. Um, and the monarchy is what united the entire country. But of course, that was uh, that narrative was challenged by the revolution of 1979, which very much flies in the face of the idea that the monarchy was what bound um, these people together. So you have that during the, the Pahlavi dynasty. And then what the Islamic Republic does is it also silences other narratives, right? So in taking, in, in co-opting the revolutionary rhetoric, taking the language of revolutionaries, taking the language of independence from foreign or the, the perception of foreign powers, um, Iran becoming an independent country, Iran becoming a democratic country, and going back to its what, uh, what some revolutionary thinkers at the time saw as its indigenous identity, which was more of its religious Shiite identity, it is a majority Shiite country, um, and it is a country that has uh, a certain base of religiosity, much like the United States does, right? If you, uh, it doesn't, it, it's not characteristic of every individual within that state, but for instance, the U.S. is arguably a country where religiosity is important. Christian identity is important to the state. 
this is why every president has to identify as being Christian. It's so important that they do so. Um, in the same sense, Iran is a, is a country in which its populace has a base of religiosity. And so that was one of the elements that was tapped into, but also because Shiite imagery lent itself so much to revolutionary zeal. The, the story of um, Imam Hussein being martyred in the seventh century in the desert of Karbala in Iraq, that story is very much, and to give a parallel for those who aren't aware, you know, like the, the story of the Battle of Thermopylae, where it's like the 300 Spartans against thousands of Persians, right? Like that kind of David and Goliath story that's ubiquitous within so many cultures, that exists within, that. that's the story of Imam Hussein's martyrdom within Shiite lore. And so you can see how these types of stories really lend themselves to, to revolutionary rhetoric and zeal. But what the Islamic Republic does is that it appropriates that language for itself it uses that that narrative for itself and then silences other narratives in, in the process. So whereas the, the Pahlavi monarchs may have focused very much on pre-Islamic Iran, um, the Islamic Republic focused on Islamic Iran. Uh, and so, and you can see that even in the year, the calendar, um, the Shah in 1971, I believe, changes the calendar to be the year 2500, starting the year, right? It's not the Gregorian calendar. It marks the year 2500 based on the Persian Empire, and then in after the revolution, you know, now we're in the year 1401 because they changed the calendar to mark the beginning of Islam, the first year of Islam, as the the first year, so to speak. So, so you see in in very basic ways how they envisioned the the national narratives of those states. But of course, in both iterations, they silence certain people. Right? They're not neither is representative of this very diverse large populace of people. And so the other factor of resistance is that Iranian people resist, continue to resist, and have resisted both the you know, despotic monarchy and the authoritarian Islamic Republic. It was their resistance that brought about the 1979 revolution, and they have not stopped resisting uh, essentially their oppressors the entire time. I view one of the things I um, have commented on about these specific protests is that in my view, when you historically contextualize it, the very basic element of the struggle that you see right now in Iran are people who want a government that serves its people, that carries out the will of its people. And that's something that Iranians have been uh, fighting for for over a century, uh, starting at the very least, and even before that, there's, you know, it predates that even, but at least at the Constitutional Revolution in 1905 where really what they're trying to do is, is have this notion of constitutionalism of representative government. So real quick, I, I just wanted to read a, a, a small excerpt uh, from your book. And I, I, I'm trying to figure out what, which page it's on, but um, you, you write, modernity created the need for a national identity while the political situation defined the terms of that identity as Iranians formed counter-narratives and oppositions to the powers that be. The fruition of their efforts can be seen in their cultural fusion and the embrace of pluralism that forced the Islamic Republic to acknowledge a more complex notion of Iranian identity. And this, this is the key part, this next part. Forming an identity of resistance, Iranians clung to the most tangible aspect of the nation-state land. Um, I, I think it's interesting because I think what you're getting at in saying all of that is that there's almost this 
third national identity that, that goes against maybe both the Islamic Republic and the Pahlavi dynasty, and is sort of an identity of resistance uh, that very much cares about you know the connection to the homeland uh, or Vatan, but it, but it's also uh, trying to be broader in its definition of love and country than maybe both the Islamic Republic and the monarchy before it. A am I getting that correct or? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's definitely, you know, the, the, I think that the, well, one of the things is the, the land loss of the Rajar dynasty in the 19th century had an impact on the Iranian psyche, right? So land integrity, the, the maintaining Iran's borders uh, becomes a very important concept. And of course it becomes, a, it's an important concept for any nation state, right? To protect its own borders. And what you see when you, because I did a lot of field research in Iran, and what you see in Iranian popular culture, in um, when you speak to people, when you do work there, is their identity, even though the, the Islamic Republic tries to enforce this sort of Islamic identity, and the monarchy tried to enforce not just a Persian identity, but but the monarchy itself as the unifying identity, for Iranians, very often, it's the land, it's the country, it's the very soil that they, that not only they, but their kin, that their parents, their grandparents were born to and have lived on. Uh, so you have a lot of, for instance, like songs that talk about Iranian identity, that talk about Vatan, homeland. Um, within the diaspora, there's a there's a concept of Orbats, this like longing for the homeland, right? That word literally means longing for your homeland. And so the the land, the country, the borders, the map become the symbol of national identity that really do transcend anything that's within those borders, right? Anything that becomes exclusive and leaves someone else out. The land can't leave anybody out. Everybody is part of the land. But if you, you know, stick to Islamic identity, you're silencing other people. If you stick to Persian identity, you're silencing other people. But when you stick to the land, no one is silenced. Everybody is a part of the land. So could you talk a little bit more about maybe some of the interviews you conducted? And also, you do a really great job of looking at Iranian music and rappers and, and even as um, Iranian cinema in your book and how this can reflect maybe... Uh, a people's Iranian identity. What does that Iranian identity look like? And what what were some of the, the things you got out of the interviews you conducted that maybe could give us insight into what that identity is? You know, the uh, the reason I wanted to look at things like cinema, television, music was because we when you talk about national identities and state formation, we often focus on the the people in power, because they tend to be the ones with the power to control those narratives and wield those narratives how they choose. Um, but how people resist those narratives is, is a much more everyday kind of task. And they do so in the way that, not only in the way that they act, I, I said earlier, for instance, uh, the simple act of wearing your hijab loosely is an act of civil disobedience. It's an everyday practice. Uh, the way that they exist in a public space that the Islamic Republic tries to control is an everyday sort of act of um, resistance. But also how they consume culture, right? The things that they watch, the things that they listen to, which forcibly make the people who are producing that culture also respond to them. 
Um, I think all of that for me was really fascinating in, in looking at how Iranians themselves identified. And the reason I talk about pluralism is because it's this idea that it's extremely diverse, right? There's this, this tendency right now to listen to people say something like, you know, people are either pro-regime or anti-regime, as if that's it. That's the entire identity that people can have or, or political belief that can be narrowed down and reduced to such a level. But it's much more complex. And not only is it complex because you're dealing with so many people, even for the individual, it is complex. You know, there are people within the society who are very, very much against the Islamic Republic and have been so for a very long time for very obvious reasons. They want freedoms. They want social freedoms. They want uh, Iran to be part of the international community. They want to live normal lives, the same normal lives that they see outside of the country that's not that, that where people don't live in with these restrictions um, and isolation. They want those same things. At, at um, the same time, though, I think there's also a, an understanding of, hey, we have to do this on our own. You know, it's not we don't necessarily trust, you know, foreign interference to uh, work in our best interests either. Absolutely. And there's so there's that right. There's this idea also. And this, so this was if you go back to uh, the early history of the revolution or at the early history after the revolution, I should say, when Saddam Hussein in Iraq uh, invades Iran in September of 1980, I mean, the idea is that this this is like a weakened state. They've had all these military purges. They're still reeling from a revolution. This will be a very easy sort of successful war um, where maybe even uh, Saddam Hussein would be successful in toppling the Islamic Republic because... Uh, because, of course, he didn't want, you know, this was a Sunni minority ruling all of Iraq, which has a Shiite majority. The idea of like Shiite revolutionary zeal in its neighboring country was not something particularly palatable to that, to to Saddam's rule. So that, of course, backfires. That doesn't work because part and and the Islamic Republic will did use the rhetoric of martyrdom, which is deeply um, connected to Shiite lore, the story of Imam Hussein and Iranian religiosity. But when you actually look at memoirs of soldiers, when you talk to people whose families were martyred in the war, they had deeply nationalist reasons why they fought in that war. There were religious minorities in Iran that fought in that war. You know, Christians, Zoroastrians in, in the uh, museums, for the war, you see those symbols of these religious minorities who also fought in that war, who who weren't fighting for their you know Shiite religious zeal because they weren't even Shiite Muslims. They weren't Muslims at all. So, so there's a deep there was a deeply nationalist uh, idea that was behind the defense, and the Islamic Republic calls it the holy defense again because they want to control the the story. But the reality on the ground was many of the people who fought were defending their borders, they were defending their land, and they were defending their families and their kin. And so there is, um, when you have this highly sort of nationalist language within the country, that can be evoked in different situations. So as an example, a more contemporary example, when the Trump administration carried out an assassination on uh, Quds Force leader Qasem Soleimani, there was a very clear reaction within the country to that assassination. Now, that doesn't mean everybody in the country liked Qasem Soleimani. He was a popular figure, but that doesn't mean everyone feels the same way. Uh, in the same way that if I said, you know, Donald Trump is a very popular figure in the United States, that statement is true. Does that mean everyone in the United States loves Donald Trump? No. Does that, it, it, in fact, 
there are many Americans who hate Donald Trump. That does not mean that he's not a popular figure. And so when Soleimani was killed, you saw there, we all, you know, saw the sort of scenes of um, people going to the streets. And it wasn't necessarily people who believed in the Islamic Republic or who liked the IRGC, but just the idea that a national figure had been killed by a foreign actor is what some people reacted to. That was the reaction. But then a week later, when Iranian authorities shot down a civilian Ukrainian air flight and killed 176 people aboard, that anger immediately reversed back to the state itself. So, and you had people, and this was the fascinating part, you had people who participated in both processions, who both were angry at the fact that the United States had assassinated Qasem Soleimani and were angry at the Islamic Republic for having killed 176 people on a civilian flight. And so this is what I mean when I say even the individual can have varying views uh, because it's not as it's not as clean cut and simple as that. Um, I do think that there is what we've seen in these protests, a lot of what we've heard from pro protesters and people on the ground there is that this is very much an Iranian people's movement and it belongs, the fate of the country belongs to the Iranian people and not to, uh, you know, anyone outside of the country necessarily. Before we close out, since we're talking about Iranian national identity and uh, Iranian nationalism, I think a lot of people, rightfully in some ways, especially in the U.S. lately, when they hear the term nationalism, I think they have a knee-jerk reaction to that word and are thinking, well, there, there is, you know, that's nationalism is this horrible, toxic thing. And, you know, I I think you can have a sense of, I guess, national pride, you know, that Iranian people can have a, a, a sense of pride about their nation and their history, and also even maybe be more pluralistic or cosmopolitan. And I guess what I'm asking, what I'm trying to get at is, how should we be talking about nationalism when it comes to countries like Iran? And, and what maybe do we misunderstand about uh, different forms of nationalism and national identity? I, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't blame people for being a little bit concerned when you hear about nationalism, right? Because nationalism- no, no. Uh, exactly, yeah, yeah. Wildly dangerous. Um, but it can also be uh, a tool of resistance, right? Like uh, when when you well, the have... national liberation struggles, you know, we exactly. can even see it with Palestinians. Yeah, exactly. So so like any other symbol, right, like anything else. I mean, for instance, the hijab right now has been has been at the center of so much of the discussions because of what's happening in Iran. And yet what people are protesting in Iran is not against the hijab. It's against the compulsory hijab. So one of the most uh, like fascinating scenes that we've seen out of the country, and we've seen these images a number of times, is women who, and you see the, obviously it's always their backs because we're trying not to share photos of people's faces because they will be targeted by security forces. But you see women, someone in like a full sort of traditional dress, someone with a loose hijab and then someone with no hijab and they're holding hands. And the image is an image of unity. And what it's trying to get at, and you've had women who are more conservative who themselves choose the, to wear the hijab coming out outspokenly in favor of the protests and in favor of abolishing the mandatory hijab. So the question ultimately is, is, is one of freedom and how symbols are used 
can be either for oppression or for freedom, depending on how you use them. The hijab can be a symbol of oppression when it's forced upon you. It can be the symbol of freedom when someone is trying to um, stop you from wearing it altogether, when it's trying to, when uh, the opposite law is being imposed. And so it's the same thing, I think, with sort of these like nationalist ideologies. When it is a tool of resistance towards someone who is oppressing you, then I don't think it's as, I, I think it can be, it can have a positive uh, effect. When it becomes itself a tool of oppression, that's when it becomes problematic. And sometimes nationalisms do do that. Um, but I do think like right now, what you see is uh, Iranians who are who are resisting are using their their sort of notion of nationalism because they're trying to take it back. When they say they're taking something back, it's not just control over the reins of the country, but it's control over the narrative of that country. It's control over the fact that they don't want to be an Islamic Republic because it's not representative of the entirety of that country. So yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that that nationalism, I, I again, I don't blame people for being concerned about the general idea of nationalism, but like any other tool, it's how you use it. I guess in closing, it seems like there may be a, a through line from, you know, the, the days of the Pahlavi monarchy to the Islamic Republic to the resistance to the Islamic Republic today, and that there's always been a people's resistance against out-of-touch leadership. You know, I, I mean, at some point, uh, Pahlavi was seen as out-of-touch. That dynasty was seen as out-of-touch with the Iranian people. Now we see the Islamic Republic is seen as out of touch. Do you think there there's like a history, I guess, of resistance to uh, the powers from above in Iran? Do you think there's a, a, a history of resistance against those powers by the people? And maybe that in itself is its own uh, identity within Iran. Absolutely. And that's actually the the sort of the, the double meaning of the title of the book, The State of Resistance, is because the Islamic Republic uses this idea of resistance as part of its national narrative, right? It um, claims to align itself with resistance movements within the region. It's one of the reasons it uses the, the rhetoric of Palestine and the Palestinian liberation movement so often. But of course, um, when it doesn't serve its purpose, it reverses that language. So in the case of Syria, the Islamic Republic did not side with Syrians that were resisting a dictatorship. They sided with the dictatorship, but they still use the language of resistance, right? The, the access of resistance against the United States or imperial powers. So it always use, employs this language of resistance. And that's a double-edged sword because it also, when you're promoting this culture, you're also promoting those people resisting you when you are the oppressor. And in the case of the Islamic Republic, that's the case, that's the truth. So I absolutely see um, this notion of resistance culture as being part of a, a sort of thread woven within the, the diverse fabric of Iranian culture and society. And they have been resisting, and that's why I brought up the constitutional revolution. They have been resisting the powers to be for over a century. And there is nothing that we, especially in these new protests, I think if anything, it just reiterates the fact that Iranians will continue to resist until those promises are fulfilled, until they have a government that serves them, that serves its people. Real quick, just, just before we close out, I know we only have a, a minute or two here, but I guess I was wondering, where do you think the, the state of resistance goes on from here? And also, I, I've noticed, I think there's a lot of ruptures within the Iranian diaspora uh, right now. Do you think that eventually, you know, these sort of ruptures will, will 
maybe die down a bit or the people will come together. Um, I, I, I don't know if you can comment on that or if you want to comment on it, but I, I just feel like there's a lot of tension right now because of what's happening in Iran. And I, I can see it kind of cropping up. Well, you know, the it's a very stressful and difficult time for members of the diaspora, um, and not not to say anything for people in Iran, which is it's you know whatever is happening in the diaspora pales in comparison to what people are actually going through in Iran. But one of the reasons why it is a stressful time is is the sort of inability to to help, right? There's a sort of helplessness of watching events happening from the outside, and and genuinely wanting to help, but not knowing what the best way to help is. And so I do think that, you know, we should have a little grace with each other for that, for, for being in, in that kind of a state. But what I would also say about the diaspora is the diaspora is not a monolith, much like Iran is not. Um, it is, you're talking about millions of people scattered through different countries, even if you just use the US Iranian American diaspora, not a monolith. We have very diverse, it's, it's a ethnically, religiously diverse, they're people from different classes, um, and different political outlooks and, and different political outlooks within the countries that they exist in, right? So you have Iranian Americans, for instance, who have very different political outlooks about the United States. So that translates to what they think about maybe Iran as well. And so maybe on a very, very broad level, there is um, the unity that says everybody wants the Iranian people to have a government that actually protects them rather than brutalizes them. I think that's like a fairly standard thing that we can all agree on. They will, you know, the belief, if you live in a country like the United States, if you live in a country where you enjoy freedom and certain freedoms and, you know, flawed but still existing democracy, then you want that for your kin or your extended family or whoever might be in Iran. You want that for anybody, anywhere in the world, because those are values that we espouse but it's not a monolith and not everybody agrees and everybody's not going to agree for the same reason that we have political divisions in the US, we have political divisions in Iran and you have political divisions in every country and community the world over. Well, Dr. Salrat, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, just briefly here, what do you hope listeners get out of this conversation and uh, how can they get your new book? Uh, you know, out of this conversation, I hope um, it can be. I hope it can be helpful in really having more thoughtful conversations. That's that's my main takeaway. Is I think that when you have when emotions are high and um, events are happening on the ground, it's very understandable that we, you know, people just want results and they want the results to be positive and they want them to happen quickly. But in order for change to happen anywhere, we have to be able to have thoughtful conversations and, and listen to each other. And I hope that that's something that we can take from this kind of a conversation. And the book, uh, I mean, it's available on on Cambridge University Press, but that would take a very long time. The, the easier route is always Amazon, um, but it's available you know, at on, online at any bookshop. Thank you again, Dr. Saul Rod, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Asal Rod, and that you'll check out her book, The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, 
please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Jerry Views to Parallax Views with Jerry The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.